First, go and grab your Bibles, if you would, and open up with me to the book of Colossians. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And um, we don't have very much longer left in our study of Colossians, maybe a, a month or so till we'll be finished with it. Um, and remember who Paul's writing this letter to. He, he's writing this letter to a, a, a relatively young church. Um, this is a church that was planted probably about 10 years before Paul wrote this letter, which means that the Christians in this church had been Christians for at the longest about 10 years. Probably, probably most of the people in this church had, had known Christ for far less than that. And so Paul's writing a letter to people who for most of their lives have been raised worshiping false gods. For most of their lives, their whole view of life and the world had been shaped by a pagan culture. So that their whole understanding of money and marriage, their understanding of uh, friendship and family, their understanding of everything had been shaped by a culture that did not know God until Epaphras showed up preaching the gospel. And as Epaphras preached the gospel, God opened their eyes. They saw, to use Paul's words from 2 Corinthians, they saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And they repented of their old worship, they turned away from those old gods, and they put their faith, their, their faith in Jesus Christ to follow Him. Okay, their lives were changed. And here's what you realize when you become a Christian. You realize that Jesus is not only the Savior who forgives us, but He's also the Lord who has authority over us. Which means that as Christians, Jesus begins this work of radically reshaping how you see everything in life. He demolishes your old worldview that you had developed apart from Him, and He rebuilds a new worldview that is built with Jesus at the head of it, so that everything in your life starts getting reshaped. And that's what Paul is really teasing out in Colossians chapter 3. In fact, he gives in Colossians 3 one of the the key ways that we understand what it means to be Christians and how we're called to live as Christians. Paul says that as Christians now, we have been united to Jesus. It's like we have been baptized spiritually into Christ. We've been immersed into Jesus Christ so that we're seen as being one with Him in His death, burial, and resurrection. So that when you believed, the old you died with Jesus. And when you believed, a new you was born. That's the spiritual reality of what has happened. And what Paul says in Colossians 3 is that so, so now the Christian life is all about constantly putting to death the practices and the attitudes that went with that old life. The old you who has died, there's still remaining sin. There's all sorts of ingrained habits. And so the Christian life is learning to constantly put all of that stuff to death. And on the other side, the Christian life is about putting on the new attitudes and the new behaviors that mark us out as followers of Jesus. Okay, all that sounds great in theory. But where does that actually happen? Well, what's the context where that is actually lived out? And Paul says that it's actually lived out. It's lived out everywhere. But where he starts is saying it's lived out at one of the most fundamental areas of what we are as human beings. This new relationship with Jesus is lived out in our relationships. 
So that when Jesus saves you, one of the things that happens is you will inevitably see your relationships at every level differently and you will treat people in those relationships differently. So Paul starts by saying if you're a Christian, you've been brought into a brand new set of relationships. You, you have been born into the family of God. And part of being born into the family of God is you have a new set of brothers and sisters. And so what we do with these new brothers and sisters is we, we put off, Paul says, wrath and malice and selfishness and we put on kindness and gentleness and compassion and humility. We bear with one another and we forgive one another. Paul says that we want the, the peace of God to rule here. We want the word of God to dwell here. And above everything else, we want Jesus to be honored here. So that Paul says, this is Colossians 3.17, that we, our, our goal now is that in whatever we do, in word or deed, we want to do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So we want everything about our lives now to give a reflection of Christ and to be done in a way that honors Jesus. So he starts talking about our, our church relationships, our family of God relationships. But he doesn't stay there. Because having a relationship with Jesus doesn't just affect our church life. It also affects our home life. It affects us in our relationships with our families. Okay, for, for most of us, our families, biological families, are the people who know us best. Our families are the people who we spend the most time around. And Paul wants us to know that following Jesus has a radical effect on how we see and live family life. Maybe a good way to think of it would be like this. Do you remember back in Colossians 1 when Paul said that Jesus is now reconciling all things to himself. It's the idea that the whole world was thrown off kilter by sin. When the fall happened and sin entered the world, nothing in the universe is as it was created to be. Everything has been thrown into chaos. And Jesus is in this work of bringing everything back into order. And one day, everything is going to be perfectly reordered under Jesus. But right now, he's doing that reordering in the lives of his people. Okay, so, so one day, everything in the universe, this whole chaotic universe is going to be brought into order. But right now, God is bringing our lives and our families back into order. And what he's going to do in Colossians 3 is he's going to talk about how under Christ, our home lives are now reordered as Christians. So let's read these four verses together. We're in Colossians 3. We won't work through all four this morning. We'll just look at the first two, but let's read this whole section. Colossians 3, starting in verse 18. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, one of the striking things about that is the brevity of language that Paul uses. I mean, can you imagine 
If somebody asked you to describe what the Christian family should look like in 50 words or less, people write whole books on that. But Paul sums it up in four short verses. And of course, he doesn't say everything that could be said, but he says a lot. And what Paul's doing here is he is boiling it down to the essence of what we're called to be as Christian husbands and Christian wives and Christian parents and Christian children. So we're going to work through the first two of those this morning. We're going to look at God's instructions to wives and husbands. So three points that we'll think about this under this morning. Here's the first one. Number one, I want to see the biblical foundation for marriage. Um, but before we get into the specifics of what Paul says here, I feel like we need to take, to take a step back and make sure that we all understand what marriage is. Okay, so before we start working through husbands and wives in marriage, we need to think through where marriage comes from. And maybe a good way to get to it would be like this. You know, there's, there are some words in the English language that have a subjective meaning. So for instance, that would be like the word pretty. You could take half a dozen ladies to a clothing store, and one lady could look at a dress and say, that is so pretty. And another lady could look at the same dress and say, that is horrible. In fact, you could look at a dress and say it's pretty, and three years later look at the same dress and say that's horrible, right? Because pretty is one of those subjective words. It's one of those words that changes with time, and it's based on perspective, but there are other words that are not subjective at all. They have a fixed meaning, like, like the word three. Three has a fixed meaning. If you looked at that and said, well, that looks like 12 to me, everybody would look at you like you had three heads. Because it doesn't matter what that looks like to you. Three has a fixed set definition. And so the first thing we need to ask when it comes to marriage is which one of those categories does the word marriage fit into? Is marriage a word that has a subjective meaning? And as culture changes and as perspective changes, does the definition of marriage change? And of course Christians have always said, and you could even say humanity has virtually always said, that no, the word marriage has a fixed definition. And it is a definition that has been fixed by God. God has, from the very beginning, defined marriage for us. That it is one man and one woman coming together in a covenantal and sexual union. Here's the way God describes it. This is going back to Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Now, now get that. God intentionally created mankind as male and female, two distinct genders, and he brought the first couple together so that in their coming together, there would be reproduction. There would be, there would be little atoms and little eaves running around. Okay, so he creates this in Genesis 1. And then in Genesis 2, 
He elaborates on it. And here's the elaboration. Genesis 2, starting in verse 22. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So God creates Adam and Eve and then God brings Adam and Eve together. And then the very next verse, Genesis 2.24, we get a definition, a statement about what marriage is. Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. It's a man and a woman leaving their prior relationships to cleave to one another. And this, this one flesh union that Paul's talking about here is especially looking with a, a view toward the sexual union of marriage. So, so marriage is two lives becoming one, which is pictured in two bodies becoming one. So that God intentionally created male and female a certain way biologically so that the two become one. And it's a certain kind of coming together, to go back to Genesis 1, so that through this two becoming one, there can be procreation when everything is functioning right. Now we live in a world where everything's messed up by sin and our bodies don't always function the way God originally designed. But God designed our bodies in certain ways so that through this two becoming one, there can be reproduction based on Genesis 1. We can fulfill the creation mandate. We can be fruitful and multiply. And when Jesus explains what marriage is, it's interesting. He goes back to these exact same verses. In Matthew chapter 19, the, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him a question about marriage and divorce. And listen to how Jesus answers. This is Matthew 19, starting in verse 4. And he, Jesus, answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man, this is quoting from Genesis 2, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together... Let not man separate. Now notice two quick things there. First, Jesus goes back to the opening verses of Genesis to explain what marriage is. Now Jesus is saying this thousands of years after the events in Genesis happened. Yet, thousands of years later, Jesus still relies on the original definition of marriage that God gave us. But did you notice how he also added something in the verses we just read? To Genesis 2, Jesus added this phrase. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. That means not only did God define marriage at the beginning, but God is also still active in marriage. So that Jesus is saying here that every time a man and a woman come together in the covenant of marriage, God is at work behind the scenes, joining them together as one. It's just emphasizing how significant the marital union is to God. Not only does God create it in Genesis 1, not only does God define it in Genesis 2, but now Jesus is telling us that a holy God is still active in our marriages. 
He's still at work in marriages today making the two one. Which means that we are not free to redefine marriage however we want. Now that has a couple application points. On the one hand, that speaks to the modern push to normalize so-called same-sex marriage. Because marriage has a particular set definition that necessarily entails one man and one woman. If it's not one man and one woman, it's not marriage. So really there's no such thing as same-sex marriage. Because if it's two people of the same sex, by definition, it can't be marriage. Whatever you're going to call it, you can't call it marriage. It doesn't matter what our society says it is. It doesn't matter what the courts say it is. It's still not marriage. It would be like this. If we took a vote today and we agreed unanimously that the world was flat, that wouldn't make it so. If the courts pass down a ruling saying that, that schools have to start teaching that the world is flat, that wouldn't make it so. No matter what our vote said or what rulings the court passed down, the earth has a certain fixed shape to it that our rulings and our, our polls can't change. That's the way marriage is. It doesn't matter what polls say. It doesn't matter what rulings courts hold down or hand down. Marriage has a certain fixed shape to it. And it's a shape that was given by God. So that speaks on one hand to what marriage is. But this also speaks on the other hand to what our marriages are supposed to look like. So since God is the one who designed marriage, that means God is also the one who gets to tell us how our marriages are supposed to function. That means God gets to tell us what we're supposed to be. This is what underlies Colossians 3. God is the one who gets to tell us what we're supposed to be as husbands and wives. Now let me just give one practical implication of this. This is why it's the idea that we should write, if you have, listen, if our unmarried people, our young people, if you have the idea that one day you're going to get married and you're going to write out your own wedding vows and that's going to be so sweet, no, no, no. We don't get to decide what we're committing to in marriage. The idea of writing out your own wedding vows is asinine. We don't choose that. God has already told us what we're committing to in marriage. God has already told us what we are and what we're to be as husbands and wives. And our responsibility now as Christians under the Lordship of Jesus is to function according to Jesus's design for us. And it's as we function according to his design that our marriages flourish and our homes flourish and our churches flourish and our and our society flourishes. But listen to me. But having the sorts of marriages that God describes is far bigger than just our own happiness and flourishing. Because the way that Paul describes it in Ephesians 5 is that the whole purpose of marriage is it is ultimately about Christ and the church. Now what that means is that God designed marriage with the goal being 
that our marriages would give a picture of the relationship between Jesus and his people. Or another way to say it would be every marriage is meant to be a dramatization of the gospel. That's what our marriages ultimately are for. And in this drama, husbands are called to play the role of Christ. And in this drama, wives are called to play the role of the church. So that the way a husband pursues his wife and sacrifices for his wife and loves and leads his wife is meant to give a picture of the way Jesus loves his people and the way a wife responds to her husband and honors her husband and submits to her husband is meant to give a picture of how we, the church, respond to Jesus. So marriage is a wonderful source of joy, can be a wonderful source of fulfillment, but one of the key things the Bible wants us to get is that your marriage, my marriage, is not ultimately about me. Your marriage, the ultimate goal of your marriage is not your joy and fulfillment. That's a side result. The ultimate goal of marriage is that our marriages would give a picture of the reality of the relationship that exists between Jesus and his people. So this is why God designed marriage. So not only did God design it and define it, but he designed it for a purpose. Because he intended our marriages to picture something. Okay, that's the foundation. Now with that in place, let's see what he says to wives and husbands. And he starts with wives. So here's the second thing. Let's see what God requires of wives. Look at verse 18 with me again. Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, there are lots of places where people would get mad at you just for reading that verse. There are churches where they would never dream of reading that verse. There are people who profess to be Christians who would get quite annoyed at you or who would be ashamed to have that verse read. Surely no one takes that sort of thing serious today, do they? I remember, this is years ago now, probably 10 years ago, talking to a, a couple one day. This was a couple that was older than me. They were not part of our church. But it was a husband and wife who both professed to be Christians. And in the course of this conversation, the wife was telling me uh, about her personality, that she has a strong personality, she likes to be in control. And in the course of telling me about her personality, she said, she kind of waved her hand and said, I guess you'll have to pray for me about that whole submission thing. And then just kind of gut laughed, like, you can't possibly, that just doesn't fit who I am. But can you imagine saying that about any of the other commands in the Bible? Can you imagine saying, preacher, you'll have to pray for me about that whole stealing thing. That doesn't fit who I am. You'll, you'll have to pray for me about that whole adultery thing. That doesn't fit who I am. No, no, that, to not do that would be rebellion against God. That's not, that's not a laughing matter, and neither is this. This is something that is significant to the God who made us. And let me say this too. If, if you read something or read a command in the Bible and you find yourself ashamed of it or blushing about it, rest assured the problem isn't with the Bible. The problem is with you. There's something in your heart that needs to be brought back into a right alignment. So what is the command to wives? Well, notice it is given to wives, plural. He's not just addressing it to one wife in the city of Colossae. 
This is written to wives in general. No loopholes. No exceptions. And the command is, wives submit to your own husband. Now notice, this is not a general command that every woman is to submit to every man. It's specific. If you're married, you're commanded to submit to your own husband. What does that word submit mean? It's a military term that means to arrange under or to order yourself underneath. So it's the idea, ladies, that you make the decision that you are going to arrange yourself underneath your husband's leadership. You're going to order yourself underneath your husband's authority. Now this word submit is used countless times in the Bible. We're told to submit to God. Specifically, we're told to submit to the Lord Jesus. Uh, We're told to submit to civil authorities. Uh, We're told to submit to elders in the church. The, The principle is that in every area of life, God has ordained roles of authority and submission. And we're supposed to submit to God ordained authority. And in the home, God has placed the husband in the position of authority. Now, the the word submit here is in present tense. That means this is an ongoing thing. You you don't retire out of it. You don't time out of it. This is an ongoing thing, and it's in the middle voice. Middle voice means, ladies, this is something you have to do yourself. You submit yourself to your husband's authority. There's nowhere in the Bible where men are called to make their wives submit. Ladies, this isn't something that is imposed on you. This is something that is chosen by you. You make the choice to arrange yourself underneath your husband's leadership. It has nothing to do with intelligence. It has nothing to do with capability. It has nothing to do with who has been a Christian longer. It has nothing to do with value. Submit is not a value word. It is a role word. God has called us to particular roles in marriage. And I should add, submission is not a passive thing. Submitting to your husband does not mean you resign yourself to sit silently in the corner and never speak and never do anything. No, it's active. It means you actively pull all of your energies and all of your gifts and all of your talents underneath your husband's leadership. It's just like the Bible would say that Jesus is our head. Okay, he's the head of the church, the head of Christians. Well, Jesus is our head, so does that mean that we resign ourselves to sit in the corner and not do anything? No, on the contrary. As our head, Jesus has given us all kinds of gifts. He's given us talents and resources, and our call as Christians now, since Jesus is our head, is we want to use all of our gifts and all of our talents and all of our resources in a way that, that lines up with Jesus' mission. Well, that's the idea here is, ladies, that that you're to use all of your energies and all of your giftings and all of your talents and all of your creativity and all of your resources in a way that helps, that serves, that lines up with your husband's leadership. And I would just say, ladies, if if you don't do this, you'll have a miserable husband. If it is a constant power struggle, if you have mastered the art of of disrespecting and emasculating your husband every time he tries to lead, you are sabotaging your own marriage. 
And notice that last phrase. Paul says that you're to submit to your own husband as is fitting in the Lord. Fitting means proper, um, appropriate. And what he's saying is submitting to your husband is proper. That is befitting a woman who is in the Lord. If you're trusting in Christ, if you're under the Lordship of Jesus, this is the behavior that God calls you to in marriage. So you're not, you're not ultimately submitting because people at church think you should. You make the decision to submit to your husband because Jesus, who is your Lord, says that you should. Dick Lucas described it this way. He wrote, what Paul is really explaining here is what it means to call Christ Lord. In his concept, there's no possibility of a married woman's surrender to a heavenly Christ, which is not made visible and actual by submission to an earthly husband. This is befitting in the Lord. And one more thing, and we'll, we'll turn our attention to husbands. That last phrase also puts guardrails around submission, right? Because you're called to submit in a way that is befitting your relationship to the Lord. You are ultimately submitting to your husband as a way of honoring the Lord, which would mean that God's call on you to submit would end if your husband leads you to do something that is displeasing to the Lord. I shouldn't have to say this, but I do. Because I have seen, I have seen men use the whole biblical principle of submission to try to coerce their wives into doing evil things. But biblical submission is only done when it's done in ways and in things that honor the Lord. Biblical submission would not allow you to follow your husband into obvious sin. Okay, so it's, it's submitting to your husband as a recognition that the marriage you have is a gift from God, that God is the designer and God is the definer of it, and it's one of the ways as a Christian wife that you and your marriage and your home honor the Lord. Okay, that's wives. Here's to me, and I didn't filibuster long enough to keep from getting to verse 19. So guys, let's see what God requires of husbands. Verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Now just like it was with wives, you'll notice that that this is written to husbands, plural. No loopholes, no exceptions. Every husband is commanded by God to love his wife. Now that might seem very practical and, and not that extreme to you. This was a radical thing for Paul to write in his day. Because there was no concept of husbands having any sort of responsibility toward their wives like this. Listen to how William Barclay explains how the husband-wife relationship worked in this world. He writes, Under Jewish law, a woman was a thing. She was the possession of her husband. Just as much as his house or his flocks or his material goods were. She had no legal rights whatsoever. For instance, under Jewish law, a husband could divorce his wife for any cause while a wife had no rights whatever in the initiation of divorce. In Greek society, a respectable woman lived a life of entire seclusion. 
She never appeared on the streets alone, not even to go marketing. She lived in the women's apartments and did not join her menfolk even for meals. From her, there was demanded a complete servitude and chastity. But her husband could go out as much as he chose and could enter into as many relationships outside of marriage as he liked and incur no stigma. Both under Jewish and under Greek laws and customs, all the privileges belonged to the husband and all the duties belonged to the wife. So in the ancient world, there were other, this is called a household code, what Paul's writing here. There were other household codes. For instance, Aristotle wrote a code about how the home, home, how the family life was to function. But the way it's laid out in all of those other uh, ancient household codes is that all the responsibilities rested with the family while all of the rights belonged to the husband. I guess another way to say it would be that that the rest of the family was supposed to do what they did. They were supposed to serve for the benefit of the husband. Everything in the home life was orbiting around the husband's good and the husband's needs. And what Paul is saying with this one command is he is turning all of that on its head. That whole view of home life is turned upside down when Paul says to husbands, actually men, you don't just have rights to enjoy, you have duties before God. And, and husband, here is your duty. Love your wife. He's not talking about sexual love or erotic love. He is talking about sacrificial love. Everybody in Paul's day would have recognized that everyone in the home had to sacrifice for the husband's benefit. But Paul's saying, sir, actually... You're the one who's supposed to be sacrificing for the benefit of your wife. Paul, you know, elaborates on this in Ephesians chapter 5. And one of the great things he does in that elaboration is he, he explains what the husband's love for his wife is supposed to look like. You remember, he even gives us a model of that love. Listen to his words. This is Ephesians 5. You'll know this verse. Verse 25, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives. Same thing as Colossians 3, but he expands. Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So, men, how are we supposed to love our wives? Like Christ loved the church. How did Jesus love the church? By laying his life down for our good. Right? He, he took the burden. He took the pain. He took the cross so that we can live. That's our model. We don't love our wives. We don't atone for our wives' sins. But our love for our wives is modeled after that. We lay our lives down for the good of our wives. Husbands, Paul says, love your wife like that. So when God established these roles in marriage and called husbands to fill this role of leader, make sure you get this, guys. This is not a selfish leadership. This doesn't mean I get to do whatever I want to do as the rest of the family suffers. It means I lead with the good of my wife and the good of my children in view. It means I lead in a way so that my interests don't come first. Uh, guys can have a way of reading verses like this and thumping their chest and 
I'm the leader. If leadership to you means you get to do whatever you want and call the shots and you get to have your hunting lease and your bass boat while your wife's needs go unmet, rest assured you are not a leader, you are a selfish two-year-old. Okay, if, if your idea of leadership is you get to do whatever you want to do and every weekend you, you, you abandon your wife to take care of the kids while you go fish and play golf with the boys, you are not a leader, you are a selfish two-year-old. That's not what leadership is. And that's not to say there's something wrong with a hunting lease or a bass boat or, or any of that stuff. But that is to say that if your needs become first above your wife and family's needs, you've completely lost the whole idea of Christian leadership. You've lost the point of what Paul is saying here. There's room for men to have hobbies, but if you can't die to those hobbies to serve your wife, you are loving the wrong thing. I'll say that again. There's room to have hobbies. But if you can't die to those hobbies to serve your wife, you are loving the wrong thing. In fact, Paul knows how dense men can be sometimes. This is why if you ever read Ephesians 5, Paul starts with that grand picture. Men, love your wife like Christ loves the church. Well, that might seem a little too big of a concept to even know where to start at. So Paul dumbs it down a little bit for us in Ephesians 5. Listen to how he continues, Ephesians 5, picking up in verse 28. Paul says, Husbands, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. So you, you might have, guys, we might have a hard time uh, conceptualizing how to love our wives the way Jesus loves the church. But here's what every guy in here knows. You know how you love yourself. You know how you meet your own needs. You know you'll go home today and if your belly's hungry, you're going to stuff something in your mouth. You know if there's something hurting you, how you're going to do everything you can to relieve the pain of whatever's hurting you. Well, Paul's saying, how about this? Just love your wife like that. Is there something hurting her you can remove? Is there something she needs that you can provide? Maybe, maybe she needs encouragement. Maybe she just needs to talk to somebody for an hour. Maybe she needs you to watch the kids for an hour so she can have a minute to unwind. What does she need? How can I serve my wife? That's Christian leadership. And the words that Paul uses in that verse in Ephesians 5 imply uh, deep tenderness. Because Paul says that, that we're to nourish and cherish our wives the way we do our own bodies. Nourish and cherish. That word cherish, the Greek word is, is used at other places in writing to describe a mother hen who is hovering over her chicks, keeping them safe and keeping them protected. That's, the, what, that's what Paul's describing, that we're, we're to love our wives in a way that secures them so they feel safe and secure and cared for and valued and loved and protected under our leadership. I like the comparison that Tony Morita makes between submission and love. He writes, to submit is to put the will of the other ahead of your will. To love is to put the needs of the other ahead of your needs. That's a good description. So ladies, you're called to put your husband's will ahead of your own. Men, we're called to put our wife's needs ahead of our own. 
And don't miss that last phrase in Colossians 3 where he says, you're to love your wife and do not be bitter. That means don't be harsh. Don't be cruel. Don't, don't let your heart turn cold. Don't be apathetic. Be kind and gentle and tender. And did you notice how God doesn't tie these commands to any particular response out of your spouse? In other words, he doesn't say, wives, submit to your husband if you think he deserves it. He doesn't say, husbands, love your wife if she's meeting all your needs. No, he doesn't tie it to any conditional thing. Hey, we're about to wrap up. Every married couple, zone in on me here real quick. I'm going to describe for you the death spiral that shows up in marriage over and over and over and over again. It's a spiral that you in your marriage this week will be tempted to fall into. Here's the way the death spiral works. The husband thinks, I'll love her this way. I'll sacrifice for her once she starts respecting me. But until she starts respecting me, she can't expect me to treat her that way. And meanwhile, the wife thinks, he doesn't love me the way he should. He is so selfish. He doesn't care for me. I'll show him respect when he earns my respect. And so what happens is each spouse withholds what the other so desperately needs and each spouse gets increasingly angry because they're not getting what they need from the other. So you got to get here. Paul does not tie this to any condition in your husband, ladies. He doesn't tie it to any condition in your wife, men. Paul doesn't say, wives, submit to your husband if. He says, wives... Submit to your husband. He doesn't say, husbands, love your wife when. He says, husbands, love your wife. It has nothing to do with how they respond and everything to do with your response to the Lordship of Jesus. Now listen, marriage is hard. There are seasons when marriage is very hard. Marriage is also one of God's great gifts. It can be a tremendous source of blessing and joy and fulfillment. But we don't get to redefine it. We don't get to decide how we want our marriage to look. You do that at your own demise. You do that at the demise of your spouse and the demise of your own marriage. So... So where you see in your heart an inclination to kick against this, I have no doubt, I have absolutely no doubt, because every married couple I've ever talked to or counseled with, this has been part of it. And I have no doubt there are married couples in our church this morning who are somewhere in that death spiral. And there is a growing callousness, and there is a growing resentment, because you are waiting to get a certain response from your husband you're waiting to get a certain response from your wife before you start doing this. You are sabotaging your marriage. You're not called to wait till your husband or wife earns it. You're called to do it because your Lord commands it and He is worthy of it. So where you see a resistance in your heart to this, repent of it. 
where you see maybe in your maybe what you need to do this morning is confess it to your husband, confess it to your wife, ask for forgiveness. Our prayer as a church is that God would give us homes that are befitting what it means to be followers of Jesus. That we would have marriages through all the challenges and all the ups and downs that are striving to give a right picture to the world of the relationship that exists between Jesus and the church. Remember, your marriage is not first and foremost about you. You died to everything being about you when you became a Christian. Your marriage is about the glory of Jesus Christ who saved you. Your, glory, your, your marriage is about the glory of this great God who created you and has redeemed you. Die to it being about you. Repent. Pray for mercy. And let's ask God to give us marriages that would honor Him and reflect the gospel. So let's pray together. I'm going to give you a few minutes just to go to the Lord in your seat. If you're married, pray for your marriage. Church, pray for the married people who are sitting around you right now. There are marriages in this room right now, no doubt, that are somewhere in that spiral. There are hearts right now, no doubt, that are kicking against what, what we just read. Pray that God would soften hearts. Pray that God would rescue and redeem marriages and homes. We are so thankful that because of a Savior who took our sin debt at the cross, we don't have to carry the burdens of our failures. We all have failures in marriage. We don't have to live under the weight of that. We can find and extend forgiveness to one another because of the work that Jesus has done for us. And so, man, maybe the call to you this morning is forgive. Forgive.